0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest today is Dr. Tasha Stanton. She is a physiotherapist and a clinical scientist. She did postdoctoral work under the mentorship of Professor Lorimer Mosley, and she now leads her own research group at the University of South Australia, Adelaide, where she studies perception, multisensory integration, cortical body representation, and pain. I've been following Tasha's work for at least seven years, especially her studies where she uses perceptual illusions to modulate the perception of pain. These are very fun and interesting studies with cool effects that really get you thinking. Uh, In one of them, people with knee pain get a massage while viewing their knee through a device that makes the knee look like it's being stretched. And for some reason, this reduces pain. In another study, people with stiff backs listen to the sound Of a creaky door when their back is being pushed on and again this affects the way they feel we use these studies as a jumping off point to get into a very wide-ranging and kind of speculative discussion about perception and illusion and reality and all these other uh, mind-body issues so it was a very fun conversation i hope you enjoy it here it is okay tasha thanks very much for coming on my podcast
1: my pleasure. I'm very excited.
0: I'm excited, too. So I want to talk about illusions. You, you've you done a lot of research uh, with the use of illusions, like visual illusions and sound illusions and other kinds of illusions and the effect on, on pain and perception and what you call brain trickery. So why is that something that's interesting for someone who's studying pain? And how do, how do you use those?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess it to take a step back, I've just always been really intrigued by how how what we feel ends up coming to be because it sounds like it should be so simple like this happens it's that message is transmitted up the nerves I get to to my brain and I feel it and yet as soon as you start to delve into this literature and to perception a bit more it is so beautifully complex and there are so many things that are you know processes that are going on behind our awareness so we're not even aware they're occurring and so To me, what illusions allow us to do is they allow us to explore some of those kind of inbuilt systems that seem to be working in in most of our bodies, um, but that ultimately quite drastically shape what we feel. So I've been using visual illusions to explore, um, you know, concepts such as, um, we term it in in the science field, cross-modal modulation, but where it's um, when what input from one sensory input actually modulates or change input from another. And with some of the visual illusions that I'm doing in people with pain, that's what we think might be happening, is that information from a sensory source, such as vision, which is you know super reliable, we trust it all the time, it provides information that then seems to actually shift or change uh, the the experience of pain. And we think this might be through um, actually shifting or changing um, a nociceptive cue or a danger, danger signal coming from the periphery. Um, so there's been some basic science work that has explored that in a bit more depth, but, but I've just been really interested in, I guess, seeing if some of this base literature that, that works when we zap people in labs with healthy volunteers, does it extend to people um who have clinical or chronic pain conditions. and in some cases it does and in, in another it doesn't. but I think that's really to me important information to understand when we are treating people with pain to you know explore that complexity
0: yeah I, I I love studying any kind of psychology. number one, it's fun, it's interesting, it's always fascinating. It always gives you insight into pain as well. So a lot of the psychological, concepts with, that, that people have used to study vision or taste or cognition or emotion stuff like that you apply them to pain just you know it's a conscious experience but it's not exactly like those other things so sometimes it kind of applies and sometimes it uh it doesn't but with, with the illusions it's it's almost like you're kind of like breaking the system to find out how it works like it like if you like if you you can it, you, it, it's easy, it, when, when it's operating well it's less interesting than when it's you've kind of broken it and made it and then you really know something about how it works right
1: that's exactly right i love that idea of breaking the system to see how it works because it really is it's, it's trying to find almost like these little loopholes or these little crazy intricacies of our systems that why is this doing this oh okay if i understand why it's doing this maybe i can use that for good <laughs>
0: Yeah, and if you can, and if you can, kind of like when when people make these illusions, like I, I my Twitter feed is filled up with a lot of visual illusions because there's psychologists there and they love visual illusions and and they're so clever. I mean, if someone can can design an illusion that that breaks my visual system and makes me see something that's not there, I know that they know a lot about the visual system unless they just happen to try a, a billion different. Uh, visual illusions and find the one that actually is an illusion, but they must have deep knowledge about how things uh, actually work. So when you're picking your illusions, do you make predictions about it? So I know you've got a study that I want to talk about where where you have people with, I think it's knee osteoarthritis and you have them look at their knee under different conditions where it looks like it's stretching or it looks like it's (laughs) smaller or bigger. Do you have your predictions about which ones are going to cause which (laughs) types of effects?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, it it involves probably going back and taking a look at some of the experimental literature to see, you know, how do these different systems interact? So, we, we do see, for example, that Um, When we change the size of a viewed body part, um, when we do neuroimaging studies, it shows that you get this increased functional connectivity between areas of the the visual cortex that actually code for seeing your body. They light up when you you see your own bodily skin, Um, as well as areas of, I guess, the the typical so-called pain system or areas that typically activate when you have a a nociceptive stimulus or a danger stimulus coming in. Um, So we see that that there are changes in the way that the, our, our systems are working when we just merely see our body part, and when we see um, it at a different size. So that was some of the underpinning that made me think this might actually have some merit in in people who have you know painful knee osteoarthritis. If we if we see in- these based studies that actually, it seems to be an innate feature of our nervous system that seeing our own body is analgesic and changing it in size, um, seems to matter to that level of analgesia.
0: But it would depend then on what, way- it, what you're seeing, right? I mean, if you saw a knife in your body, that wouldn't be analgesic. I, I imagine <laughs> that that's my, that's my guess.
1: Yeah. So skin intact, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so it, with the, the, um, knee ones, I actually had It was a tough one to make a hypothesis for because um, we don't know right now why some people seem to respond to a knee getting bigger and looking stretched out or a knee looking shrunk or smaller. And so we have various hypotheses around that. And and so what I did in that study is I actually, um, I made it specific to the individual. So we did some pre-testing and kind of figured out which ones seemed to work for them and then did all the control conditions specific to make sure that we're controlling all for all the different things for that illusion that did work for them. So it, it is challenging. And so one of our hypotheses was that it's a, it's a possibility that if your body part feels wrong to you, so it, it almost feels like it's swollen when it's not, or just feels off, then possibly doing an illusion that almost reverses that or puts that back to normal might be analgesic. Um, And we do, I guess, see that a little bit with complex regional pain syndrome with some of the really early work that Lorimer did where they report feeling that their limb feels too big and and it's swollen. And if he he made it look smaller, that was pain relieving and reduced swelling. But if he made it look bigger, um, it increased pain and and increased swelling. Um, But it doesn't seem to be quite as straightforward for people with knee osteoarthritis. So most of them on average, felt that their knee, when we did a, a visual scaling task, they, they chose an image that was actually larger than their knee truly was. And yet many of them responded to kind of a stretch illusion where their knee does look a little bit
0: bigger. Um, yeah, I thought that was so, funny. So, so you, so you, you, you've got that, they look at their knee and then they see it. So when someone's pulling on, on the calf and then they see the knee as if, as if it's like stretching. And I was like, I'm not so sure <laughs> I'd feel less pain <laughs> under that condition. Yeah. Why don't, why aren't they thinking, oh my God, you're ripping my knee apart. Yeah. Oh.
1: yeah. And it's interesting with that one, because to me, that raised the possibility um, of a cognitive influence where cosmetically actually your knee looks nicer <laughs> when it's like, it's long, it's elongated, it's stretched out. And for many of them, it's on comment. On that, so, um, but yet the the visual condition alone, where we just made their their knee look stretched out, that that didn't influence pain. So it suggests it's not not just that. It is has something to do with having uh, input from numerous sources to kind of make it feel real. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really interesting because I think that kind of understanding some of that nuance is actually quite important if we say wanted to take that and test that in a larger trial.
0: Have you noticed that some people are higher responders to? I mean, you must notice that some people respond more than others, right? Are there big differences or?
1: Yes, yeah, so we, we had probably um, two or three people that didn't get any change at all. Um, and they were it's just so lovely because they were just like, I don't think, I think I'm wrecking your study. And I'm like, no, you're the reason my study exists. This <laughs> is perfect. You're doing it perfectly. We want to know if this doesn't work on people. Um, and, but it, what, I guess one of the questions we have is um, we tend to see that people have generally different um, susceptibility to different illusions. So if you do a rubber hand illusion where you hide your real hand and put a fake rubber hand in front and you touch the hidden hand and the rubber hand at the same time, for some people, kind of immediately, that rubber fake hand feels like their own right away. But others, no matter kind of what you do, they don't really get the illusion. And so I'm quite interested in that idea of, you know, what is, what's underlying that? Why is it that for some of us, we don't get that? Is it that we're just being um, like super trying to things out like you'll you'll not catch me (laughs) and a cognitive overlay where you're kind of preventing anything from occurring but I actually don't think that is necessarily it because we can still even if you consciously know that that is not your hand or that your body part hasn't changed in size oftentimes your your body systems and your brain still responds like you do. So if we attack it, if we do something to it, or you will still respond, you'll sweat more, you'll pull back, you'll have a withdrawal reflex. Um, But the the people don't have those. So it's not just that they're, you know, consciously saying, oh, yeah, you're not going to trick me. And I'm intrigued by that, because to me, that could be something that could help us, first of all, have a better sense of who we might try these things with, and better shape, for example, a clinical trial, if we were about to go forward, um, but also just at a base level, like what's going on in their systems? Like yeah. how are their systems creating perceptions and is it in a different way than other people in the population that actually might have, you know, real relevance for how they interact? I think, with the yeah. world?
0: I think people, different people are different. I mean, as someone that's done um, a lot of Feldenkrais work, this is a kind of a mind yeah. body thing where you roll on the floor, you're working a lot with your body awareness. It's a lot of interoception going on. Some people are much more high responders than others. Uh, they feel different in their body, just imagining different things happening. And it's kind of feels, the perception changes a lot. Same thing with subtle forms of body work or, or yoga or something like that, other kinds of mind, body stuff. And other people, everything feels the same all the time. They're kind of yeah. like insensitive to their environment. One of, the, one of the good explanations I've heard of this comes from the, the predictive uh, coding people. You know, the predictive coding, the predictive processing, where, where the idea is that you you have kind of an expectation coming from top down to perceive things in a certain way, and you will perceive things in that way unless there's a huge difference uh, coming from from your body. Uh, and some people just are very, very, very top down, and so things are always the same. And some people are very, very, very kind of bottom up, and if any there's any little discrepancy and what they were expecting, they completely changed their whole model for the world, and they feel differently. Yeah, so like the kind of people that are really sensitive about like a little, um, a little piece of their clothing touching them would be like that type of a person, like yeah. sensitive people in general.
1: Yeah, I, I do love that. I mean, that the whole literature in predictive processing, I think, is so interesting because it yeah gives that idea of. <laughs> The people that are experiencing things so deeply or or so minutely, they're these like prediction error detectives, (laughs) like their systems are just primed to detect anything. And I I think that's why I do kind of like illusions, because it sort of does fit into that system as well, because we're basically inducing a prediction error and we're saying, you know, what's happening to you, when we do this, what happens to your system? And we, it's, it's kind of, we have this one illusion that we, we test that's called the disappearing hand trick, where basically um, your hands look like they're in one position, but they end up, so they look like they're just straight in front of your body. But through this kind of proprioception adaptive trick, your hands are actually spread quite far apart. And so where you, where they actually are is not where you have last seen them to be. And then when we disappear the hand from view and you go over to touch it, it's just missing. And you're like, what? Where is it? You have no idea. But if we don't have people reach over to touch and so they don't actually realize their hand is not where it truly is, and we merely just get them to localize where their hand is located, what we actually find is is people have different... Um, shifting curves of getting more accurate at localizing. So right away, most everyone will choose the last area that they saw their hand to be. But over time, they start to get closer and closer to the accurate position of their hand, despite the fact that they don't know their hand isn't where they last saw it. And so I love that that trick because to me, it kind of suggests that we all have this kind of different weighting that we may, might place on visual versus proprioceptive information, but also oh. the precision with which we detect error, even when we consciously do not know it's there, seems to be different.
0: So you will start willing to, you totally change around the error you tolerate uh, with, with your the proprioceptive sense compared to the visual sense, and you start relying on one more than the other.
1: Yeah, and that, that kind of... If, if you do not consciously know that one is wrong, for some people, it doesn't seem to update. Proprioception is no, like, I know you're not moving, but you still have a sense in space of where your body is. And for whatever reason, that is not updating. And so I wonder if they're the similar, like not interoceptively um, precise um, people so that this, this interoceptive, because I mean, we could consider proprioception sometimes to be this interoceptive cue of information. They're not they're not updating or they're not detecting it. And there that to me is also kind of this interesting idea of of people um, in which their systems might not be um, as as prone to detect um, error or difference.
0: Yeah, so I mean, the the stable people, the people that are perceiving the same things over and over and over again over time, that can be a great thing if the way you're perceiving things is, is good. But if it gets into a maladaptive kind of perception, you want to shake up their model and update the model and say that body part is healed the stop perceiving it as if it's if it's injured and when you do illusions you're 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 kind of shaking up the system and you're saying you're not so smart you, you don't know what's going on at all it's time to to change your model of of the body because look you just made a huge mistake
1: <laughs> that's right and i think it's something the fact that it is usually so novel i think is important because it how do you have expectations about that, like we're inherently breaking expectations that you would have for your body, and so I think that that in in, in that way, I suppose it it's kind of nice because you are forcing error <laughs> onto yeah. people.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're, it's, it's kind of like you're opening the mind of the mind a little bit with with just a with, with a little something. Well, that kind of uh, one. I guess that makes me want to go in two different areas. One is, uh, well, what about drugs? That's another way to um, get people to make a bunch of uh, prediction errors and kind of like open your mind and change your models about the world. And some some of these drugs, like psychedelic drugs, cause people to have like permanent personality changes to being kind of like being more open to experience. One of those big five types of things. Are you, Have you followed at all the... The um, research into using drugs to, you know, kind of change people's model of the world with regard to having like depression or anxiety, stuff like that. And have you ever thought about uh, its role in pain? I think Ramachandran is, is working on this with pain right now.
1: Yeah. Um. So I've not followed it too closely, but you do see particularly with, um, I've read a little bit into depression and a little bit into um, end of life. So when people are, have been given a terminal diagnosis and then use some of these psychedelic drugs to, to kind of achieve peace and to, to, to be okay <laughs> with, with things. And so I think that there's real merit into looking at, at some of these um, drugs. I think particularly in cases where you do really have these recalcitrant chronic conditions that a lot of things have been tried and, um, but I, I, I would be so interested to study some of this further because I mean, I mean, what on earth would it feel like to undergo an illusion when you're on those, like, you, <laughs> like, your mind you, don't explode,
0: to, you don't need the illusion when you're on those, everything counts. It's as
1: already different.
0: Yeah, yeah, No, you don't, you don't need to do the rubber hand thing when you're on LSD. The hands rubber oh, on ready. That's right. <laughs> I think it
1: it has inherent pull, though. That idea of okay, if you have if everything seems to be stuck into this maladaptive pattern that we're not able to shift, that to me then has merit to start to explore those possibilities. But but ensuring that I guess that we're exploring it, you know, quite rigorously.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying just go take a bunch of drugs or (laughs) anything. But but uh, you know, with the illusions, um, I guess the the. One of the questions I have is, are these just temporary parlor tricks that have small effects? uh, Or is there a way to use these this kind of brain trickery uh, and kind of a longer term chronic actually treating people type of a basis? And I guess I guess that maybe graded motor imagery is is, those are not exactly illusions, but it's the same kind of mind body kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I would argue that I think what we're doing is inducing a temporary Change um, in potentially the way in the functional connectivity of different places in the brain, but also possibly in the way that the body is being represented, particularly if we are doing um, a type of illusion where we're changing um, morphology. Um, uh, and so, but I think there is, I mean, some preliminary evidence that practice use with these can have sustained changes. So, again, a study, I think it was, was ages ago. Um, that Lorimer did in people with spinal cord injury showed that if you had a walking illusion and they viewed that, I think they did it every day for half an hour or something like that, they had um, increases in their the analgesia experienced, but also the spatial area of pain. So these are people that with, you know, neuropathic pain, basically below the level of spinal injury and so they're getting changes in both intensity and spatial spread of pain. And that there was another study that looked at if you primed the motor cortex with, um, it was TMS or uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or it might've been transcranial direct current stimulation, but increase the excitability of the motor cortex in, in those patients before they did the, the virtual reality walking illusion, then they had even better effects. So I think it may, like you said, be a little bit like graded motor imagery where it might require sustained application. Um, in the paper that we did um, with NeoA, we had them come in three different times and we saw quite consistent reductions in pain that for some people lasted, you know, two to four minutes. Some people lasted a little bit longer. A couple lasted only for the duration of the illusion. It was basically back to normal once it was gone. Um, but to me, I guess that raises the possibility of Um, things like body illusions as adjunctive. So not as a sole treatment, but maybe as something that when you have someone that's, you know, in really a lot of pain, you're using those to then open up a window of opportunity to maybe undertake exercise or, um, yeah, using those, I guess, in a way that we're trying to enhance some of the other effects of our treatment.
0: Uh Yeah, so the illusions, uh, there's no doubt that they show you something really interesting about the perceptive, how the perceptive uh system works and then the the, the clinical part Well what about virtual reality when it might become someday more practical to put ourselves in you know basically illusory types of situations all the time do you know anyone who's kind of thinking about you know kind of these uh, futurist idea of using virtual reality as part of pain management or treatment
1: yeah so there, there are a couple people that are using VR. Uh, and so like Beth Darnell um, has done some excellent work looking at um, uh, VR. And I think um, her her program is probably more that people are, are going through different stages and kind of working through this VR program. Um, one of my master's students, um, Brendan Moat, he has been involved in, um, we basically created a virtual reality bike. Where you're, um, it's on an, an ergometer, so you're pedaling, and how hard you're pedaling determines how fast you go. And basically, we can create hills, we can create all these different sceneries. But uh, as in all the work that we do, <laughs> it's deceptive. <laughs> and so um, we we do again manipulate the environment. So he's actually just about to submit that paper. Um, but in, in brief, what it, it it seems to first of all matter. Um, how aware you are of your inner body workings, how interoceptively aware you are as to how you respond to this. So it's something that if we were to use things like that and, and kind of bring this into into clinical situations with the aim of making exercise feel better, um, it would matter how um, intuitively aware people are of their own inner body workings. Because um, there's growing evidence now that the more aware you are of the inner body workings, the less sometimes um, outer illusions can trick you. So you might detect that incongruence, but um, you might more readily detect an incongruence, but also it can sometimes make you feel worse because you're in a situation where things are incongruent and you are aware. Um, so it's interesting how things that involve bodily movement and ongoing effort. So really, I think to me, requires um, a more in tuned consideration of homeostasis being more interceptively aware might sometimes um, not be as good of a thing because it means that you're always detecting this incongruent state and potentially being like, actually, I can't be certain <laughs> that I'm achieving homeostasis here. I should feel worse. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it's it's really, I think it's really interesting stuff to consider with virtual reality because, um, I don't know, have you ever done um, one of the VR, I think it's just a free game, but it's
0: where you climb and you see I've your never, own. Thing. I don't think I've ever even had the thing on my head. Yeah, yeah. so it's,
1: it's a cool experience because,
0: like, it's incredible. Even
1: if it's not that real, like it doesn't look super perfect animation. If you're tracking with something, you're in it. Like if you're seeing hands move and you're moving your hands at the same time, it feels real. And so there's this virtual reality climbing one where. It's sort of weird because you have these disembodied hands but the idea is to you know just kind of engage with the environment you see your hands move but then you can fall off the rock and so when we did we did the, uh, the brain bus and we took it around to all these different rural and regional areas in Australia and let people try these different illusions and we had to be so careful with that one because when people fell Sometimes they would just like almost sit down (laughs) like their legs would just give out because they're falling. (laughs) But some of those, I think are really, um, they're interesting ones to study as well, because that disembodied hand one, when you're climbing, for me, when I come out of it, I don't feel right in my body. I like I'm moving my hands and I'm moving my limbs and they, they don't feel correct after that. And it takes about two minutes before it normalizes. So I think actually by mistake almost, some of those programs can also help us start to understand some of the, kind of the more weird neurological conditions that we like foreign limb or th- you know things where it's not my limb, <laughs> threw the limb out of the bed, they fell out of the bed because obviously it's still attached to them. <laughs> so I, I think there's there's merit actually in some of those programs helping us to understand um, and, and I guess mimic experimentally some of the, the more rare neural conditions.
0: Yeah, that feeling about just – I think that I I mentioned before the idea of kind of like high responders to mind-body stuff and Feldenkrais kind of stuff. I put myself in that uh, situation, and you mentioned like some people have kind of like a uh, sense of interoception and kind of a need to feel coherent in their body, or maybe like it's easy for them to feel incoherent. I'd say I'm that type of a a person. I remember driving a – doing a video game where I was driving – you are your city, it's one of these race car driving things. And, you you know, yes. you're kind of, it's just a video game, but you know, you're the things right there. And it's a big, it's a big thing. Yeah. And you're driving and you're, and you're banking and I got sick <laughs> <You know? laughs> I got sick for hours. You know, it's like, I was like motion sick because I was getting all of this visual yeah. information that I was going through G forces, but I wasn't getting the G forces. And I was like, that's not right, man. I didn't feel, I didn't feel good about that at all. Uh, oh, I order. agree
1: though. It's oh so, it is so strong. And it was inherently actually why we ended up with our virtual reality bike having a straight path. <laughs> because as soon as you could curb, I was the exact same thing. I nearly fell off the bike and was almost ill. Like it was it's so potent.
0: So what I remember reading some research and I'm not sure if it kind of panned out. It, it was uh I think it was something about the thermal grill illusion, or maybe uh, an illusion with a hand behind the mirror, and uh, the, the, something about it was inducing like a, an incoherence in, in what you were seeing with what you were feeling, and it made people feel worse. Um, and you know, I guess it's the idea of having your your um, your your brain maps actually reflect what's going on in the body. If there's if there's something that's not accurate there, that in itself may be Red as a threat, yeah.
1: you know, it
0: kind of makes sense. You know, if you're not if you if you're not in sync, that would be kind of a bad thing, and you'd feel bad, and maybe have more pain as a result. But what do you know about about that idea? And I guess that gets us at a little bit in the direction of, um, you know, the body maps in general, and and connections between inaccuracies and bodily representations and pain. So to tell us where we're at. Yeah. With that.
1: yeah, it's it's a really good question because I I think. I guess in in the discussions that that we've had with various colleagues about this, intuitively, it seems to me that if we have low precision, um, let's say about our own body and where it's located, and or if we have um, this feeling of incongruence, so something seems inaccurate, um, to me, at a conceptual level, that would make sense that your level um, uh, of protection would need to be higher because you could be less certain that you are accurately detecting threat or that you are accurately responding to threat. So from, I would argue, kind of a homeostatic per- perspective, if you don't have precise information, y- you have to have a greater bandwidth for um, potential error. So you have to be more protective to ensure you're safe. Like walking
0: around in a dark room.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You have to go slower. You have to be there's various strategies that you yep. would go with, uh, and into place. Um like, I, I think there, there's starting to be some um, evidence that precision with that um, might matter. Um, I'm trying to, I was part of this one study. Um, it was out of um, Nura in Sydney. And basically it was um, a version of the rubber hand illusion, but it was the disembodied rubber finger illusion. <laughs> so in this illusion, um, both of your hands are hidden from view, but one hand is sort of straight out in front of you and your your index finger is put into this little device that basically basically passively flexes um, your your last joint of your index finger. So the little baby or the little index finger the last joint is flexing. Now at the same time, your other hand it's higher up, so it's uh, vertically closer to your head, um, and you it's again hidden from your view. But you're grasping the end of a plastic finger. So you've got a finger being moved. And you're grasping a finger, but vertically in space, they don't align. And so they did that where it's synchronous movement. So your finger's moving, being passively moved as you're feeling (laughs) this other tip of a finger move. And in your brain, it's like that you're you're moving your own finger. Well, I nearly threw up. Like (sighs) I I was green. I was sweating. And then all of a sudden, this was the craziest thing. It was like click. And then I just felt like my my whole perceptions just shifted. And whatever my brain did, it decided that spatial error didn't matter. That was my finger. And then immediately I, I wasn't nauseous. And then they did the opposite where then they're moving them out of sync. And again, immediately I felt quite sick. But this one passed a lot quicker. And the, it was like a snap shift. And then I could feel the spatial difference. So to me, that was so weird because it illustrated this idea that I think incongruence can matter. <laughs> um, and particularly when you're in a situation where you are getting repetitive motor and sensory input that matches, and that is confirming that incongruence, you you respond with threat. You're like this is this is threatening, something's wrong. Why? Why else are you tr- are
0: you throwing up? <laughs> yeah. <so laughs> how many people out there are suffering from something like what you just described at some lower level, or is this only something that happens when you do some weird kind of parlor trick where someone's intentionally trying to deceive you? That's a question that that I've had, and I know in my own experience doing kind of mind body body awareness kinds of things like yoga and Feldenkrais, I can walk out of those and feeling. More coherent, more aware, yeah. and it's a good thing. <laughs> and I can. There yeah. have been times in my life, although now is not one of those times, where I've felt kind of incoherent and kind of unaware, or kind of like this part is. It's not. It doesn't. This. Uh, it's. It's not. Yeah. It doesn't hurt, but it's just not doing what it's supposed right. to do. <laughs> and and, yeah. uh, and then I do some sort of mind body thing, and now it does feel that way. So, I feels if it's
1: that. Yeah, that's. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) But no, I know what you mean that it like those, I think those things can shift. And I I wonder whether you, sometimes I could see that if there was a predictable error, always in one direction, as is being induced in that illusion, um, you can adapt to that. And I think the problem is that when things are imprecise or inaccurate, it's not always necessarily a predictable error. It can be a random error. And I think it's random errors that that makes learning difficult. And it's why we see, like, I think in some of the associative learning paradigms, when they create um, unpredictable error, that's often when things get upregulated and people have higher, you know, defensive responses and things. So to me, that would kind of make sense in situations that I think in a way that experiment that I described is a bit of a parlor trick because I'm not sure that we always get such congruent error or consistent error, but that actually you can still have impacts that might not be so you're not so consciously aware of it but that when it's that random error it can still potentially increase that need to protect
0: okay so we're talking about you know improving the clarity of the maps to improve the the way you feel in your body and that uh, well where are we with uh, uh, graded motor imagery right now because that's basically what we're trying to do with that am, am i right What's the state of the research? How well is is, uh, this technique working? And can you describe it briefly as well?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, gradient motor imagery basically involves, well, the theory behind it is trying to sort of sequentially activate different um, areas or, or parts of the motor system. So you're starting with left, right judgments where you're identifying Without moving your own limbs, whether a picture is of a left or a right hand, for example, if you had hand pain, and with that, it's um, we know from neuroimaging studies it's activating some of the um, you know supplementary uh, areas of the uh, the brain, so supplementary motor areas, and you're not activating your motor cortex, but you're trying in that case to sneak under the radar of a sensitized system where pain is often associated with movement. So you're trying to activate some of those movement maps, but without eliciting pain. Um, so that's practiced for about two weeks usually. And then it moves on uh, to uh, imagined movements where you're imagining, you're seeing a picture, let's say of a hand in a, a weird position and you are taking the time and imagining what it would feel like to attain that position. And again, you're, you're using slightly different um, areas of uh, motor areas. Um, and then after that, it goes to mirror therapy, where you are watching uh, a reflected image of your good limb moving, often keeping your um, affected limb still. Um, but basically, you're getting that visual input of pain-free movement, and that can be progressed. So you start to move bilaterally. Um, but again, you're wanting to elicit uh, increased activation of motor areas, but without pain. Um, so there's, um, I mean, some early um, trial evidence that was really um positive for uh, the effect of graded motor imagery for complex regional pain syndrome. Um, There was a, an audit that was done, I I think out of the UK that didn't have as nice of outcomes, but it was really, it was quite hard to compare um, because it, the dose that people were getting was quite a bit lower than that, that which was tested in the, um, in the clinical trials. So what we can um, I guess confidently say is that if you don't use a high dose uh, in and potentially have a wider population that might not respond as well, which is also a consideration, we're less certain of, it, of its effects. Um, we have some new information that I can't share yet, but watch out for it, that we tested um, a, a version of this in people with back pain um, and also used um, a kind of a sensory discrimination pro, uh, program. So it's kind of this tactile discrimination training where The point is that you're touching different areas um, of the skin of the painful body part. And people are required to very precisely locate which area um, is being touched and with what kind of stimulus is it sharp? Is it dull? And basically kind of forcing them to, to train and activate some of the sensory um, maps of that body part, which are ultimately required to accurately locate a stimulus.
0: And so So I think I saw in one of your talks that the um, although the graded motor imagery is effective, the dosage is quite high. That that is needed to be effective to the point of. Did you say uh, like five minutes om- almost every hour?
1: Yeah. So that was what was done in the original trials was five minutes every waking hour.
0: That's pretty. That's pretty rough.
1: Yeah. Well, I think especially if if you're working <laughs> or you're doing something else, that I think that really could be a challenge. Um, I suppose probably the people that were in the, the study trial, they may have been more severe than others and were off work or and had that ability to do it. And there is also that effect of, of, of when you are in a trial, it does attract usually a slightly different demographic of, of people. So we always do have to take that into consideration.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, let's talk about stiffness. I was really psyched to see one of your papers on stiffness talking about the difference between Well, I mean, we get confused about the difference between pain and nociception, that's that's confusing enough, but the difference between the feeling of something in your body being stiff and the mechanical property of that body part being stiff, well, that's even the same word, so that's even more confusing. So what's the difference between (laughs) those two things and what have you found out?
1: Quite a lot is a difference between those two things. Um, But basically when we're talking about, there's, I guess there's to to start off, but there's a lot of different ways to assess biomechanical stiffness um, and some have are probably more ecologically valid, some are, are less. The one that we used in our study is we used um, basically what often we use as, as clinicians, which to look at stiffness at the back where we would apply a pressure to the, the spinous process, to the vertebra, um, and basically get kind of a sense of the bulk resistance to applied force. Um, and what we use with this, so, so it's, it's quite general. I would argue it's not really specific to one area, but you're getting a general measure of Um, stiffness of the spine to to force as well as um, the musculature around it. And so we used a really specific machine to do this, that, you know, we very, very carefully measures displacement of a probe, and it very, very carefully measures the force that you apply. So you can get a sense of of, of, of stiffness um, as you're applying force and as you're holding it. And um, so we basically found that Um, So that that more objective biomechanical measure um, didn't relate at all to um, how much stiffness people reported feeling in their back. So a more um, intensity of a feeling of stiffness. Um, And so this was quite interesting right away. Um, But what we then found was that um, how stiff your back felt actually related a little bit more to um, how protective you were of your back and the protective you were of your back, we did that with a measure that that basically it was estimating how much force you thought that you were receiving on your back. So people that had very high levels of stiffness, despite the fact that mechanically they're very similar to everyone else, they perceived that there was much more force being applied to their back. And what was quite interesting is that, that we could shift this. So um, when we added, you know, different sounds to the back, so if we had that big probe pressing into someone's back, and with that probe, we, we um, added a sound of a really creaky, squeaky door, that changed how people's backs felt. So it, when they were in that situation, it started to feel more stiff. And if we gave a really nice, like, um, kind of whooshing um, noise that kind of signifies easy, we thought, (laughs) easy movement, um, then people began to feel less stiff. Um, And what's quite interesting with that is that this happened for both people who had back pain and healthy controls. So um, it suggests that, first of all, some of these processes... um, that kind of these sensory processes that are inherent to us, they seem to be intact in people who have back pain. So these sensory modulation processes are still working. Um, but also that this these quite concrete, that they thought feelings of stiffness could actually be, be shifted quite readily. And that only lasted typically um, when we were applying the stimulus, but it, it showed that this could be shifted.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's that, that feeling of, that's kind of a particular, it's a kind of a confusing feeling, right? A lot of my clients will say, they'll be like, uh, it's there's something here. I'm like, well, is that pain? Well, it's no. stiff. Yeah. It's stiff. And then it's, it's a bad feeling. And it's a, I mean, what do you mean by stiff? I think what people mean, is it's a bad feeling and it has something to do with you feel it more when you move and you feel yeah. that you are restricted and moving a certain direction but they don't necessarily have less range of motion. And when you touch it, it's not necessarily harder than other muscles. And so those are very different things. The feeling, yeah. the feeling of stiffness, whatever that weird feeling is. So my, yeah. my question is, you know, pain, that's a feeling that's probably there to motivate us, to protect us from perceived damage to the body. So stiffness is a feeling. So what's it What's it for? (laughs)
1: Yeah. So we hypothesize that it as similar to pain where it would have a homeostatic function to propel us to do something or to not, then the available evidence that we would have from from our study would suggest that it's potentially trying to, it's a feeling induced to protect us from movement that may well be perceived as being damaging or harmful. So um, whether or not that is protection from um, a, a specific degree of movement or a speed of movement that we don't actually really know. Um, but what I would love to do actually in follow-up studies is to, you know, pair some of these sounds with more um, ecological movements. And we did try this at first with the back and it it got so hard, <laughs> so fast, but I was thinking that it could be a nice one to do with the knee um, where you have kind of a set range of motion, but you could, You can pair sounds with that directly to see if we can shift, for example, feelings like stiffness. And of course, the the challenging part with any of this is often with repeated movement, stiffness can abate. So as a study design feature, you have to be really quite careful to ensure that whatever effect you're seeing isn't just because um, they're moving it more. But that's where for our study, that's why we did three repeats of every indentation or, or every pressure into the back is because if it was just because we're it, pushing something into someone's back, all we should see is that it's getting feeling less and less and less stiff over time. But we didn't see that. Right. We saw directional changes based on what we added. So um, we would look for a similar thing, I think, in in, in more ecologically valid
0: movement. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that stiffness is a feeling which motivates you to not move. Uh, and I, I know that feeling, but I think there's another flavor of stiffness, which is the opposite, which actually mm-hmm. it's the kind of stiffness that says, oh, I feel stiff and you want to move. And yes. so there's certain kinds of stiffness which actually motivate people to do a lot of stretching on yes. things. Because yeah. they're saying, this is stiff. I must stretch that, I must stretch these hamstrings, right? And sometimes it works and it feels good and you feel and and that cures the problem. And sometimes it makes it worse. So it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, that that is a really interesting thing as to whether it might be more about controlled versus uncontrolled movement. Like, do you know when you're you're moving nice and slow and you're just you're in control of this versus if you had to do something really quick. Um, I, w- I would wonder if that would be a, a different story, but I think there, there are questions that we don't know, um, yet. And I, I find it just so interesting because you're right. It is such, it is such a weird sensation because it's, it, there's not enough words to describe it almost. Like I feel yeah. like we no, need it's, to it's, talk. It. It. It's his own
0: thing. It's its own phenomenological yeah. thing. And it's, it's some sort of, a, a of a feeling, which I, which I think is there to motivate you to do something good. Yeah. And, um, well, and it, and it kind of goes along with that other weird feeling that I, that is even much harder to describe that feeling of incoherence or wrongness or not quite rightness yes. of things yes. not being in the right place, which I think is kind of a motivator to get people involved in like a lot of postural types of things that people do. You know, this is not yes. my shoulders. I get clients. The they say my shoulders, they, they're just not, is it hurt? No. Does it feel stiff? No. <laughs> they don't feel in the right place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No,
0: they
1: don't. Isn't that so interesting because it's like, I think there's been a real backlash against postural things in terms of back pain in the last little bit and which I I'm not, uh, not in contention with in many ways, but I, I really like that idea of, it's almost like the awareness of posture and the awareness of the fact that I am in this position or I am moving here that actually I do really love. And I think can be quite important because as you say, it, it's almost like re, it reconnects you in a way. Like when things are feeling a bit off, it just is that little switch that feels like, Oh yeah. Right. Okay. No, this is all right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I used to do a lot of uh, you know, before I got hip to the, all the research that there's not good correlations between posture and and neck pain and back pain and these other kinds of pains that I used to experience, uh, I would do a lot of, you know, postural work through yoga or weight training or other things. And I'd feel better afterwards. And I thought that's because my mechanical posture is getting better, reducing nociception or something like that. And after a while, I, so that's not a good explanation, but what is the explanation? Maybe it's because yeah. I'm increasing coherence between the maps or whatever. There's just something about my system that just doesn't like, a feeling of not being aware. or It doesn't like a feeling of slumping, and it kind of knows that this is a powerful thing, and so it feels good when it's powerful. Or I, yeah. there's a lot of subtlety to it.
1: Yeah, but I love, so I think that ability to update hypotheses isn't it? Is because we have you know hypotheses of why we think work, why things might work, and these maybe mechanistic models. But that's, I think, that's what I love about science is that it is helping to try to update things, and I, I suppose in a lot of ways it makes me not it wants me wants me to make to be careful not to always throw things out immediately when they're not working for the the mechanistic reason we think they are because oftentimes there's just more nuance within it.
0: Well, yeah, excellent point. What what have you changed your mind about recently? I will admit that there's something that I changed my mind about just a little bit was a few years ago and I can't remember the name of the study when there was a study I think by Lorimer about uh, where he was uh, explaining pain to people who had just gotten, had some back pain. And I was uh, hoping that that would have more effect in the long term on the trajectory of their pain, but it had uh, less effect than I would have hoped. And some people were like, well, that's just what I was expecting, but I was expecting something a little bit better. So I, uh, in my mind, I changed my idea a little bit about the efficacy of explain pain types protocols for people and preventing them from growing chronic in pain well, what did you think about that study
1: yeah that was um yeah Adrian traeger's study and James Traeger. McCauley. and it, yeah really really I, like what I love about study is that it was so methodologically robust so I trust those results so much um I, I it was interesting um I think I, I what I was interested in I think the most is is I agree it did it I predicted as I'm sure they did, that it that it would help actually reduce chronicity, um, and so to me that shifted in my mind that we can't assume that we can't assume that it's a good thing that we're giving people before that uh, for this information. One of one of the challenges that I found with that is that, um, and we've run into this in our studies, is creating an educational sham is so freaking hard because. So even, so their sham was basically, they listened, they didn't give very much advice. Um, But one of the therapists who is doing this and we chatted numerous times, one of the treating clinicians, he was saying, look, I don't really know what to do because like, I'm not doing this, but I'm watching them start to figure out things and problem solve for themselves.
0: And he's like, I don't know that this is the nerd. (laughs) Uh-huh. So, um, so, what? It's not ethical to just tell them a bunch of lies. <laughs> <laughs> no lies were told, which is okay no, no. I mean, because if you want to sham education, I mean, you, you could kind of yeah. like say, "Okay, look, this is your disc, and it's yeah. red and bulging." Yeah. You
1: know, yeah, that's right. To hurt people, <laughs> but I do think that it, it's a really interesting feature because it also does tell us something about um, there's there's numerous mechanisms, I think, towards promoting um, good recovery. Um, and but I, I do know what you mean like I, I was quite surprised um, with that finding
0: yeah yeah so uh, in the future what are some things that you're looking forward to I'm hey what if you had like a, a, a zillion dollars what what's what study would you do what illusion oh. would you do what illusion. I know I know maybe you've never even had uh, thought about this happening but you know if what would you yeah. really like to find out
1: <laughs> um, I think I'm actually starting, I mean, there's so many studies at a perceptual level. I'm not saying level.
0: I've got a million dollars right here. Yeah, like. yeah a zillion. <laughs> it would have to be a zillion, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's so many perceptual things like at a base level that I would love to test. But I actually do think on my radar at the moment is that the biggest divide that we're having right now is that we're showing things in the lab and they, they're not clinically accessible. So they're not things that actually can be used easily. So some of the things that I've been, I guess, focusing on in terms of the grants that I'm writing or the things that I want to do is that um, I want to actually take these technologies to the clinic. So run feasibility studies where we're figuring out the problems with this stuff, we're creating easy models, but that still have the functionality that we need to be able to replicate some of these things, and then actually test them in clinical settings. So that when we're going into clinical trials and evaluating these, we have 10 physio clinics or 10 massage therapy clinics around the city that each have one of these devices, and we're testing it in situ. And so, what we're able to say is that, yes, if this is in the clinic and they're not coming to a fancy university, we expect there to be this much benefit. So, it sounds kind of boring compared to some of the experimental stuff, but I just think it's so critical because otherwise, then The stuff that we're doing is advancing science but it's not necessarily advancing how to help (laughs) and um I just think that's a really key aspect and I suppose the the other area that I've gotten just really interested in the last little bit is um understanding uh I guess the modern story I'd argue of of knee osteoarthritis or osteoarthritis in general and trying to you know, shift our perceptions away from this idea that it's a wear and tear disease involving bone on bone and these terribly vulnerable joints that have been caused because you worked hard labor or you injured yourself. And and I mean, well, those things like injury or, or doing a hard labor job can contribute. I mean, we're just starting to understand it's such a larger condition where we're really looking at, you know, low levels of body-wide inflammation that, you uh, combined with almost numerous other things happening at the same time would suggest in the the process of osteoarthritis beginning rather than a joint wearing out and i just think there's there's so much potential to try to combat some of those myths that truthfully often terrify people in terms of well why would on earth would i be exercising when i 've got this wear and tear disease, am I not just going to wear up my joint even more when in fact, then you have people going to to surgery before they 've ever had a good course of conservative treatment and potentially not getting great outcomes so yeah so I, i'm i 've been very passionate I guess about this area over the last probably two or three years and and we 've got a large trial that 's running um, to, to look at the the impact of of some of these myth busting um,
0: methods okay well I will look forward to hearing from you about that and any other brain trickery you you're bringing it into the clinic uh i really enjoy uh all of your work and all of your ideas and talking to you i appreciate that as well um what uh where can we find stay in, stay in touch with with what you're doing online yeah
1: sure so probably the best um i'm probably most active on twitter so my handle is at tash underscore stanton Um, and other than that, we recently, we used to have the body and mind, uh, blog that had all of our different papers, but we're just in the process of getting one set up for, um, the lab, the group of people that, that, um, I supervise. Um, so we'll have a list of kind of all of our different studies there. Um, and otherwise, other than that, um, a a Google search of of my name and some of the publications, we're doing our best to make sure most of the new ones are open access where we can. Um, but I mean, email us, send a message on ResearchGate if you'd like, and we can always um, sub- send you a, a PDF. Cause I know at the, that's a real barrier. I think at the moment to actually be able to get some of those resources.
0: Well, thanks again for coming on.
1: Oh, pleasure Todd. Thanks for having me. Always, always fun.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone for listening to the better movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like, and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.